0: Hey everyone out there, and thanks again for joining us here at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. Now, this is the September episode, but with Scientific Assembly just around the corner at the very beginning of October, I wanted to deviate a little bit from what we normally do, which is feature one podcast-only content piece and also feature one magazine piece. And I wanted to do a little bit of a dive into the breadth of our content. And the reason I wanted to do that is Scientific Assembly is obviously chock full of lectures, workshops, content. Um, We'll also be having our editorial advisory board meeting during uh, Scientific Assembly. And with that, I thought it was good to put out there the breadth of what we cover so that you, our listeners, our readers, could give us feedback about what you would like to hear more of. We, of course, have our usual uh, columns. We have our uh, cadre of writers as well, but we put together a lot of features, um, both clinical and not, and we would love to hear what you want in the upcoming year. Now, with that, though, I wanted to go over a little bit of what I thought was worth mentioning for the September magazine. And then I did want to do one deep dive into a clinical topic. And the reason I think that's important is at the core, we are all ER doctors. I think our clinical practice is really important to us. But sometimes with uh, media, we get a little bit distracted by by the emergency medicine plus stuff, shall we say. So just to dive right in, um, I of course have to highlight our front page story of this month's magazine, which is Four Perfect Days in Philly. Now again, Scientific Assembly right around the corner. If that wasn't enough to just ensure four perfect days in Philadelphia, we have a little bit of extra tips and tricks for what you can do while in Philly if you are uh, looking to to be busier than you probably already are at the conference. Um, it's also really good, I think it's worth mentioning, for if you have family members or spouses joining you on the trip, but perhaps not going to lectures for something for them to do um, while you are doing daytime things and, of course, bring them out at night and for all of the social events. Now, also on the front page is um, our feature about APP's closure. So, Obviously, this is still very top of mind for everyone in emergency medicine, even with the transition to the new groups already having happened. Um, This is also on the tails of our podcast last month with IV clinician doctor, Dr. Leon Adelman, where we chatted workforce and the changing of the tides that both Envision and APP's changes uh, reflected in the field. I think it's notable that APP has since filed for bankruptcy um, and I think again shows a lot about where the industry of emergency medicine is going. Now in this uh, feature they have a couple of great interviews with um, content experts and people at APP sites discussing transition Um, As many of you know, the concerns about if payroll for the last couple of months of the APP contracts are going to get paid. And again, as many of you know, um, whether or not there is going to be tail coverage. Um, Tail coverage is, of course, when you have insurance and someone could sue you for an event that happened during your insured time. However, if the lawsuit is filed after uh, the time of the insurance's term, then you might not have a quote tail. In other words, you may not be covered. So the concern here is doctors with APP, if they were be, if they were to be sued by a patient for malpractice during their tenure with APP, but the insurance is no longer getting paid, obviously because of APP's uh, ceasing of operations. What would happen? Who would have to cover liability? Um, And if it's individual doctors, that tends to be massively expensive. Um, If it's individual groups, as they take over, we've already heard lots of stories of uh, various groups requiring uh, two years um, to be with them before that they'll guarantee a tail is covered and so on. So this piece goes into a lot of those details in discussion from a legal and economic and, of course, from the physician uh, perspective. On that note of workforce, I think we have a lot of it in this, um, in this magazine. Uh, ASEP just had its summit on the boarding crisis to come up with solutions for it actually in DC. So we should expect to see hopefully some content coming out of ASEP then of what they decided. That happened again just at the end of September with a small feature in the magazine this month. We also have a uh, favorite report, which is the emergency compensation report with Barbara Katz in this month's magazine. And this is the compensation report of ER physicians by region. Um, In that, probably my favorite part of that is uh, the top states and cities for opportunity, which is based both on the availability of jobs as well as the salary um, or average compensation for those jobs. And the top states in the country currently are Texas, Tennessee, New York, California, and North Carolina. You can probably tell from my tone of voice that I was surprised by California, um, but yet the numbers are there. Now, the top cities for opportunity are a little reflective of the states, but it's San Antonio, Houston, Los Angeles, Pittsburgh, and Knoxville. Now, we know that the emergency medicine workforce and industry discussion right now is a little bit doom and gloom. So there's two features I thought were also worth highlighting about two ER doctors who are doing something a little different. We have a great creative careers with Dr. Joe Scott, who is actually heading cruise ship medicine for Carnival, which is yes about as exciting as it sounds like. That's a great feature um, that has me, you know, if nothing else, uh, wanderlusting for sure in the seas. Um, We also have a great feature on Dr. Ben Mattingly, who actually just summited the seven highest peaks in the world with Everest being his last. So not only are there some phenomenal photos, but I just love this because this is the ER classic, right? Like work hard, play hard, and the play usually involves adventure sports. This is a great feature on Dr. Ben Mattingly's um, accomplishments. Now, to get into the clinical topic to highlight, um, we actually had a piece by Dr. Anton Hellman that featured one of my favorite diagnoses in the ER, And it's my favorite one because I've maybe diagnosed it a handful of times, but it's such a difficult one. And it's one I just love to ask the residents about. And that is cerebral venous thrombosis. Now, Dr. Hellman does an amazing review here because it is a zebra, but it's a zebra we see if you look for it. Um, And I mean, unfortunately, we probably don't look for it enough. So there's probably some of it being missed. But my summary on... Cerebral venous sac thrombosis is, has always been considerate in a female who's about 20 to 50 years of age who has a headache and something, and that something is really vague. Dr. Hellman actually puts together an amazing list of symptoms that are extraordinarily broad, um, including things like vision changes, diplopia, nausea, vomiting, papilledema, cranial nerve defects, encephalopathy, hemiparesis, dysarthria, aphasia, seizures. Uh, bilateral motor deficits, and so on. So it's a really, really wide range of symptoms. And how I think of it is that the range of symptoms are just something potentially neuro. So to me, it's headache plus a hard neuro sign. Now, I learned a lot reading this article. Um, One of the things I learned in this actually is that two key clinical features of advanced cerebral venous thrombosis are papilledema and loss of venous pulsations on fundoscopy. And why I found that so interesting is I frankly can't remember the last time I did a good fundoscopic exam. It's almost like a joke because we're like, we're not really sure if we can see something. I could absolutely see doing um, POCUS. (laughs) But, you know, as for seeing the venous pulsations, I think that's a little bit of a far cry. And because it's too clinical- two key clinical features for this diagnosis, I realized like, wow, this is a hard one because most of us will not become experts in um, uh, fundoscopy. That being said, I did think that Dr. Hellman does some really helpful um, pearls on what sort of headache can be a potential cerebral venous thrombosis. Um, Unfortunately, the punchline is that there's no specificity. It's very, very, very broad. It can be diffuse. It can be progressive. It can be sudden. It can be unilateral. It could be like a migraine. Um, it can have everything from, uh, from a thunderclap style headache to being something that's gradually over days to weeks with a median time to diagnosis from initial presentation and diagnosis being seven days on his uh, literature search. So again, I think it, Emphasizes to us how hard this diagnosis of CVT is, other than what I mentioned before, kind of in broad strokes, younger females with headache and something. That being said, I think the meat of discussing cerebral venous thrombosis is to know your workup. Like, I think step one is to understand the potential presentation and understand that it exists and have an astute awareness of it. So you're looking for it. But once you have that, what do you do? What do you order? Um, I thought there was a great discussion about D-dimers. Now I think D-dimers, we love them, we hate them, but boy, do we try to use them for a lot of things. So D-dimers have been proposed as a screening test for patients with low pretest probability, but the sensitivity is about 80 to 98%. So it might change your pretest probability. It might make you suspect something more or less, but it's definitely not good enough to rule out or even rule in. And we know, of course, that D-dimers are highly, highly, highly nonspecific. So the punchline here was that the D-dimer should be used for low pretest probability patients and that if you're going to play the dimer game, just like in CTs, like if you're going to play the D-dimer game, Uh, You better be ready to CTPE. Same thing here. If you're going to play the D-dimer game, know that you may be wanting to do a CT venogram. Now, in discussing the imaging, um, I mean, we order (laughs) non-con CTs of the head day in and day out. Um, That being said, a non-con CT head has only a 41% to 73% sensitivity for the diagnosis of cerebral venous thrombosis. And your diagnostic test of choice is actually CT venogram, which um, actually has MRI venogram being the gold standard. Now, I will be pretty honest. I have never, ever, ever ordered an MRI venogram. Um, And I think a lot of our EDs, it is an act of God to get an MRI at all. But the CT venogram is actually something that most of your department should be able to do. So I always keep this in mind that if I am really concerned about a cerebral venous thrombosis, that I go to the CT venogram. I don't rely on the non-con CT head knowing that it's probably not that likely that I'm gonna see what I wanna see. That being said, um, the non-con CT head can see a couple things. Classically, that's the delta sign or the dense cord sign. So the delta sign is a hyperdensity in the superior sagittal si- sinus. It looks a little bit like a triangle back there. Back there. Um, or uh, in the straight sinus, which is the dense cord sign. But that's only seen in about 30% of cases. And I'll be pretty honest, in every cerebral venous thrombosis case I've actually diagnosed, I have seen a delta sign. And then that led us to a CT venogram. And I'm sure someone in an inpatient probably did order the MRI venogram as the gold standard. That being said, um, cerebral venous thrombosis can result in hemorrhage, and hemorrhage is seen in about 30% of patients, which is obviously going to be seen on the non-con CT. Um, One of the most classic places for hemorrhage is isolated bilateral frontal lobar or thalamic hemorrhages, which again, should make you consider cerebral venous thrombosis on a non-con CT. So all that being said, I think index a suspicion based on a clinical presentation, maybe play the dimer game, but my honest truth is I probably will not. Um, and then know that your real imaging in the ED should be a CT venogram. Or you could get lucky on a CT non-con. Now, once you diagnose a CBT, I think we actually kind of stop there a lot of times because it's so elusive and such a zebra. Um, I think the next question is, what do you do? Now, cerebral venous thrombosis are obviously clots. Um, The young females are at risk of them, have all the same clot risks of anyone else, like estrogen, birth control, etc. But the treatment then makes sense. These patients should be started on low molecular weight heparin. Now, one of the issues though, um, and this was actually something a little bit mind boggling to me, is that there is a percentage of CBT that presents as hemorrhage. So something is bleeding. Still in those cases, we should still be giving heparin. Now, this is weird. There's a brain bleed, but we're still giving heparin. Now, even though hemorrhagic extension is found in 11% of patients with cerebral venous thrombosis, This does not have any relation to anticoagulation, and this intracranial hemorrhage is actually not a contraindication to heparin in patients with cerebral venous thrombosis. So let me say that again. Even if you have a CT on a patient with a cerebral venous thrombosis that shows hemorrhage, do not withhold heparin. I know, counterintuitive. Dr. Hellman has some great citations on that one because I promise you I looked them up as well. Um, but it's a good way to kind of bring us full circle on everything from presentation to diagnosis to management of cerebral venous thrombosis. So check it out in the ASAP Now magazine. is also available online. Um, we have a few other articles from the archives a couple of years ago about cerebral venous thrombosis. I think we do really love this diagnosis because it is a bit of a zebra, and you know it's kind of fun, and um, it presents us this headache, which tons of people have, and something else. So check it out in the magazine. Great clinical article for, uh, for this month's magazine. Got to do another plug for Scientific Assembly. It is not too late to register. If you are registered, awesome. Check out our four days in Philly feature on the front page of the magazine. And as usual, we want to keep you tuning in. So tweet us if you have an idea. You can tweet us at, at ASUPNow, or you can feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts and keep you tuning in. So that is it for me this time. And we will see you next time. And of course, at Scientific Assembly. Thanks, y'all.